working through this good book, uh, verse by verse, written about 700 years or so ago. And uh, it has been a challenge to interpret, to understand, uh, and, uh, but it has been rich as we have worked through it. <clears throat> You might recognize this picture here. In the 1930s, General Douglas MacArthur was hired by the Filipino government to build up their defenses. Filipino Prime Minister sensed the advancement of Japan, neighbors to the east, and the tone in her leadership, and this became priority number one for the Philippines. When the war began and Japan's forces advanced more rapidly than many even thought, adjustments needed to be made quickly. The pre-war defense plans assumed that the Japanese could not be prevented from landing on Luzon and called for U.S. and Filipino forces to abandon Manila and retreat with their supplies to the Bataan Peninsula. MacArthur attempted to slow the Japanese advance with initial defense against the Japanese landings. However, he wasn't totally confident in the ability of the Filipino troops at this point. After the Japanese landing force made a rapid advance, landing in the Gulf on the 21st of December and ordering a retreat, and he ordered a retreat to Bataan. Manila was declared an open city at midnight on the 24th of December. They forced the Navy to destroy considerable amounts of valuable material as Japan was in the outskirts. On the evening of December 24th, 1942, General Douglas MacArthur moved his headquarters to an island fortress in Manila Bay. He boarded an army transport and with his headquarters reported to Washington as being open on the 25th. There is a series of air raids by the Japanese that destroyed all the exposed structures on the island and the headquarters were moved into a tunnel. Later, most of the headquarters moved to Bataan, leaving only the nucleus there with MacArthur. In February 1942, about two months later, Japanese forces tightened their grip even tighter in the Philippines, and MacArthur was ordered by President Roosevelt to relocate to Australia. On the night of March 12, 1942, MacArthur and a select group left in four PT boats. His family and Sutherland, one of his generals, traveled aboard PT-41. Flew them to Australia eventually. His famous speech in which he said, I came through and I shall return, was made in Australia Railroad Station on the 20th of March. In April 1942, he was appointed Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in the Southwest Pacific and awarded the Medal of Honor for his defense of the Philippines. He spent the next two and a half years of the war returning uh, in in an effort to return to the Philippines, commanding an island-hopping campaign in the Pacific. When finally he returned to make good on his promise to liberate the Philippines in October 1944, Waiting ashore in that picture there, he announced, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil. December 44, he was promoted to the rank of General of the Army and soon given command of all Army forces in the Pacific.
The next year, September 2nd, 1945, MacArthur officially accepted Japan's surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. From 1945 to 51, as the Allied commander of the Japanese occupation, he oversaw Japan's army uh, become demobilized and restored their economy, drafted a new constitution and numerous other reforms. He was an amazing man, born in a military family, but his promise, I shall return, is one of the great promises of our modern day. A promise probably all of us have heard of. But in Micah chapter 2, there is a wonderful promise that God makes to the Jewish people in Micah 2 verses 12 and 13. We've seen in Micah chapter 1 and, verse, and, and chapter 2 the judgment that God had made upon, uh, upon Israel. The northern kingdom, Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, headquartered in Jerusalem. God promised that there would be amends that would be made for their sins. They would be held accountable for their sins. The outlook was grim. The book of Micah for Judah. But the prophet Micah voices a ray of hope through God's message based on God's covenant promises to Abraham. And as you read the book of Micah, it's kind of structured like a Jewish day. A Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. in the evening and ends morning. And that's kind of how each of these three messages of Micah is structured. It's a message of evening, of doom. And then the dawn of God's grace raises up at the end of each of these messages. And that's what happens in this first message of Micah chapter 1 and 2. It's been a a message of doom. It's been a message of, of judgment for their sin. And then in verses 12 and 13, the sun rises and God promises grace. And here in chapter 2 is the briefest of the promises. Verses 12 and 13, only two, voice, two verses. They'll be expounded more in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But there are three promised truths that are stated in verses 12 and 13. And they're expanded greatly later on. But the first is that the Lord will regather and renew His people as their shepherd in verse 12. Secondly, he will break them free as their Savior, their Redeemer, their bondage breaker in 13a. And thirdly, he will lead his people as their King in 13b. Last week in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we looked at some of the judgment that God had pronounced on these Israelite people. We saw there in verse 6 a hardened refusal to accept the prophet's words. They said to Micah, prophesy ye not, prophesy ye not. They didn't want to hear the judgment. They wanted to hear that that they would only be uh, walking in in blessing and and honor and, and, and flourishing. They pushed back against the prophet. And they perverted the promises of God and His mercy. And forgot about the promises of His anger against sin or Israel. And heaven responded. With a resounding no. Here is the judgment of God. And heaven's rebuke follows. There is a plain promise of God. That those who are righteous will receive the blessing promised to Israel. There is a prosecution. As God the judge of all the earth summons Israel again and says here is what you have done wrong. And we looked at how God had told Israel to walk in mishpat, a Hebrew word for righteousness and justice among the people. They failed in that. 
In verse 8 and verse 9, you can see some of the horrible things they were doing to the people who were most vulnerable. Then in verse 10, he pronounces his judgment. He says, there will be a payday, and it is planned, it will come to to pass. You will be taken up, you will be cast out, you will be taken in exile. And then he said, your other judgment is those false prophets that you want to listen to. The ones that will tickle your ears. He said, you'd be happy if they just said to you, uh, uh, in verse 11, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink. He shall even be the prophet of this people. That's all they wanted to hear. Have their ears tickled. Live, eat, drink, and be merry. God says, no. You'll face judgment. But one one of these judgments is these false prophets. Judgment of God. And then in verse 12 and 13, very abruptly, very abruptly, and it's a passage that if you study it in isolation from the rest of the total context of the prophecy, that's why I've been encouraging to read the whole book of Micah. And if you read chapter 4 and 5, you'll start to see these, these, uh, these promises start to unfold more. But uh, uh, when, you, when you only saw the, this, uh, this passage uh, and didn't look at the rest of the context, you might see, well, he's just predicting a return from the captivity. But that view is kind of inadequate, I think, if you look at the broader uh, background of Micah's understanding of the future. Micah, in chapter 4, and verse 7, says, And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. It's bigger than just returning from captivity. Micah envisions a kingdom with an eternal kingdom with Yahweh as their king. He's the deliverer in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, who's talked about, Though thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travailed hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this man shall be the peace. Great promise of a deliverer king who plays the superior role in the restoring of God's people. A ruler whose birthplace is in Bethlehem, whose influence is going to extend to the ends of the earth and bring security and peace to God's people. This is more than just a mere restoration from captivity. This is an eternal kingdom. Israel's hope realized. I'd like you to turn with me over to Romans chapter 11 to understand how this unfolds. God is the royal shepherd. He promises to gather a remnant of his people like sheep in a pen. And then as their king, he leads them out of the city gate. Romans 11 and verse 26. Well, let's go to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Fullness of the Gentiles, verse 26. And so, 
All Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. What Paul here is saying, there will be a time when all Israel will be saved. The remnant will be saved. All Israel will be saved. I think that is what Micah here is referring to in the end of each of these grace passages here, the end of these judgment sermons. There will be a day when God restores Israel more than just a spiritual sense. This is a passage that's interesting, as many Old Testament passages didn't just have a single fulfillment, but have a kind of a progressive fulfillment as well. Uh, Certainly, there is a foreshadowing here of what would happen when Israel was returned from captivity. That wasn't the full fulfillment. And when Jesus Christ comes, there is the fullness of Jesus Christ. As He liberates His people, He says, uh, 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 the one who brings... um, uh, makes the captives free, Jesus describes himself. And there's that sense. But then there's the full and finality of it. And Israel and the millennial kingdom is restored. Back in Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is God speaking. He says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as a sheep of Basra. As a flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of a multitude of men. First of all, this morning, I want us to see. The promise of a shepherd. The promise of a shepherd. Here is a shepherd who gathers... A shepherd who gathers. Jacob and Israel are synonyms for the entire nation. So great is going to be the regathering of this people that the place is going to throng with people. The Old Testament speaks of God as a shepherd and His people as as a sheep. He's a shepherd who gathers. What kind of a shepherd is it if He would never gather a sheep? And this shepherd is going to gather Israel. Excuse me while I plug in my computer. Battery warning light. Apologize. He's a shepherd who gathers his people. Secondly, I want you to see here that he is a shepherd who guards. He's a shepherd who guards. Look at the words. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as a sheep of Basra. Basra was a place in Israel that was known for their tremendous flocks of sheep. As a flock in the midst of their fold. Do you know what a fold was for? Many times it was a stone wall, and of course there was a door there that the sheep could go in, and it was uh, the shepherd would, would, would plant himself at that door so nothing could come in the door. But a, but a fold was to protect the sheep. He's going to bring them into their fold, and he is a shepherd who guards. A shepherd who guards. The people are going to be like sheep brought together into their pen for safekeeping. In other words, nothing's going to climb over the walls. They are brought into a pen for safekeeping. But thirdly, I'd like you to notice this. This is very interesting. It says in verse 12, They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. 
He's a shepherd who is glorified. A shepherd who's worship. <clears throat> the word there, great noise, is, is, is like, have any of you ever walked into a full stadium? A full sports stadium. And when you're walking through the tunnels in the stadium, you can kind of hear the crowd a little bit. But then when you walk through and you're in the presence of, the, of all the crowds, say 60,000 people in a football stadium, the, the roar, the dull roar of people's conversations, it's, it's, a, it's a murmuring, you can hear it. It is a powerful thing. Here. And, and that is the word here that's used for the, for, for, um, the, the, the noise in verse 12. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude. It's a, it's a word that depicts the murmuring of members of a community. Um, in 1 Samuel 4.5, it's used of the earth that echoes to the noise of a loud shout. So here's the thing. They're in this fold. The picture is here uh, of Jesus' sheep, uh, uh, Israel, in this fold. And he is among them as a shepherd. And there is sound of talking, of murmuring, uh, not in a negative sense murmuring, but that, that hum of activity here. And, and although his people might be reduced to a remnant in exile, in the future they will be restored, they will become a great throng. The place is going to throng with people. That word there, a great noise, is literally the, the fold or pasture will, will murmur or roar with people. There will be a great commotion due to the throng of people. And... What else would they be speaking of, this righteous remnant, than the glory of the shepherd? He's a shepherd who is worshipped. I'd like you also to see, though, in verse 13a, there is the promise of a Savior. A promise of a Savior. Verse 13 says, The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. The promise of a Savior. There's a figure that appears in the scene here. Suddenly, this this one called the Breaker, the one who breaks open the way, appears in the narrative. There's no introduction to him. He's just called the Breaker, the one who's going to break through. He's described as going up before the multitude. Now, they're confined. And this activity is described as breaking. And I don't want to mix metaphors here. And I don't want you to still picture the sheepfold. Now I want you to picture people entrapped in a stone wall all around them. Walls all around them. Unable to get out. And then there comes one like a ram who batters through those walls. Who breaks through the walls to free his people. This breaker, the, the people then burst through the gate and they form a procession that you see later on has a, uh, with their king at their head. He opens up the way. He leads his people out of the lands where they've been scattered. His action, his action enables his people to walk behind him. And so we have a savior here who initiates, initiates. He makes the move. He does what they could not do. He breaks through the walls. He breaks through the walls. And they exit the place of their confinement. So we have a Savior who initiates. But secondly, you have a Savior who incarnates. He is there with them. He is in the flesh. He is there with them. The breaker will go up before them. So he must be one of the throng. He's there in the crowd. He goes before them to lead them out. His work isn't done from outside in. He is there with them. He's identifying with them. And he bursts through the gate. 
And together they go forward with Him before them. He is a Savior who incarnates. He is there identifying with His people. Thirdly, He's a Savior who invigorates. He invigorates because look, it says, they have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. He brings life. He brings life to His people. They follow Him. He has opened their eyes. He has, he has uh, removed the blinders. He has, he has broken through the captivity. He's given life as a living water. They follow Him. He's a Savior who invigorates. Now then look at the end of the verse. Not only is there a promise of a shepherd, a promise of a Savior, a Redeemer, promise of a Sovereign. The promise of a Sovereign. Verse 13b and their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Now we understand that this breaker is not just any person. He is a king. He is a king. He is a king, so first of all, he is a sovereign who governs. A sovereign who governs. He is one who will lead his people as their king. As their king. Isaiah has much in common with the book of Micah. And Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 2 says this about the king. Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. He will save us. Do you remember what the people shouted uh, on that Palm Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that donkey? They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. And they put him on that donkey and they recognized him as their king, the king who would save them. Jesus is king. Jesus is a sovereign who governs. He's king. He rules and reigns as king. There is no king higher than King Jesus. Their king shall pass before them. He's a sovereign who governs. But notice, he's a sovereign who guides. He passes before them, and the Lord on the head of them. He doesn't abandon them. He passes, he leads them, passing through before them as their head. You know, Yahweh, Jehovah, is pictured all throughout the Old Testament as the one who goes before his people. You remember all the way back. When the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, God put before them a pillar of fire. And that pillar of fire went before them. The pillar of fire was God, Yahweh, when they came up out of Egypt. He is the king who passes before them. He guides. He guides. And there is safe passing because he is in the front and he is in the back. Remember when Israel was trapped at the Red Sea? And God put that cloud, that Shekinah glory, between Him and His enemies. Between Israel and their enemies, the Egyptians, as they were being pursued, and allowed Israel to cross through on dry ground at the Red Sea. He is the God who guides, the Sovereign who guides. Thirdly, look at the further unveiling of who this person is. This king is the Lord on the head of them. The Lord at the head. He is the Sovereign who is God. And Micah's quotation of what the Lord says in verse 12 uh, ends in in verse 13. Micah starts describing him and he identifies the one who's going to restore Israel as the one who breaks open. The King, the Lord. The one who will go up. There is certainty to this action. 
Interesting that ancient uh, rabbinic interpretations of this passage understood that the one who they were speaking of was the Messiah, the Redeemer. And there's the connection here. The one who is king, the one who is uh, shepherd, the one who is savior, the sovereign one, he is Yahweh. Verse 13. You see his strength, his majesty, this remnant is going to receive its final glory, its vindication to the Messiah. He's going to lead, he's going to rise from his people. He's going to lead them in the security of God's kingdom. And I read to you chapter 4, verse 7, that explains a little bit more. I believe this will happen in the future. It hasn't totally happened yet, my understanding of the scriptures. I just haven't found enough to refute that. That Jesus will come and He will reign. He will touch His feet down on this earth. He will reign. He will restore Israel. But I also want you to understand in this time and place right now that it is Jesus who has been spoken of. Jesus Christ who opens the prison doors, redeems the captives of Zion. Led by Him, they break through the walls. They march through the gate. They go out through it out of the prison. They break through, they march through, they go out. See the progress there. King Jesus at their head. Just as Jehovah, as the angel of the Lord, went before Israel in that pillar of cloud and fire, so there will be a future redemption of the people of God, of Israel, that remnant when all Israel will be saved, as Jehovah will go before them as king and lead the procession. And friends, I want to tell you this this morning. That this Jesus is the same Jesus you and I have. This is the same Son of God. The one who will do these things for Israel is the same Son of God who is our shepherd. Our Savior and our Sovereign also. That shepherd who came to seek sheep. Who in Luke 15 wasn't satisfied with 99 but went and sought at his own peril for the hundredth. The good shepherd. The good shepherd who said who had also other sheep who were not of the fold of Israel that he must seek. The shepherd who came and lived among us. John says. He tented, he tabernacled among us. He came and became God with us. God in the flesh. The God-man. He identified with mankind. He is the incarnate God. He is the one who lived in our ruin and captivity under the fall, yet without sin, but identified with us. This one came and laid down his life for his people. He broke through the spiritual gates. And the writer of Hebrews calls him the captain of our salvation, the pioneer, the forerunner. He shattered the fetters. He broke down the prison walls. He rolled the stone away from the grave in his resurrection. He carried away the gates of our captivity like Samson did on his own shoulders. He released the captives and he leads in the life in him. And he ascended on high as the conquering king. And he is exalted as the conqueror. Through faith in his work, in Romans 8, Jesus says we are more than conquerors through him. Hyper-conquerors is the idea. Hyper-nikaio. It means super-conquerors. With him in the end. I want to ask you this morning. Do you rejoice 
in Christ. Do you rejoice in Christ? To see what God will do for Israel and to enjoy what He has done for His children right now should be like ice water in our tongues on a, on a hot scorching day. Really should. This is where joy is. This is where freedom is. This is where peace is. This is where nourishment is. Have you come to Him? He invites all to come to Him. He says to the woman at the well, Whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up in everlasting life. Whosoever drinketh. Whosoever is you. Whosoever is your neighbor. Whosoever is your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, your family, your spouse. Whosoever. He's done all that is necessary for you to find Him as the shepherd. Gathers, guards, is glorified among His people. He's done all that is necessary as a Savior who initiates and incarnates and invigorates, brings life to His people. He's done all that is necessary as a sovereign who governs and guides and is God Himself. He is enough because He is everything. Colossians says, In Him does all the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. He is enough. It is in Him. And as He lived on this earth, this Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, for all people, came to His hometown synagogue in Nazareth, opened the scroll to Isaiah, and said these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, delivering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And He closed the book, and gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. Messiah, who promises what he will do to Israel one day, is the one who had done, who has, who has done these spiritual things in the spiritual sense for us today. This is Jesus. He calls us found faithful in Him. Because of His work, we're called to be obedient. We're called to labor on His behalf. Because He served us, we're to serve Him. Because He loved us, we're to love Him and love others. He is the Savior, He is the Shepherd, and He is the Sovereign. This is our Jesus. Let's pray.